listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ in the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the top 500 albums of all time, ranked number three, it was released on August 5th, 1966. It was the seventh studio album by a band you might have heard from Britain called The Beatles. The name of the album is Revolver. And the first track, the opening song on Revolver, is a song called Taxman. Maybe you know it. Hold off on singing it right now. Here are the lyrics to Taxman. Let me tell you how it will be. There's one for you, 19 for me, because I'm the taxman. Yeah, I'm the taxman. Should 5% appear too small, be thankful I don't take it all, because I'm the taxman. Yeah, I'm the taxman. If you drive a car, I'll tax the street. If you try to sit, I'll tax your seat. If you get too cold, I'll tax the heat. If you take a walk, I'll tax your feet. The tax man, because I'm the tax man. Don't ask me what I want it for if you don't want to pay some more, because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man. Now, my advice for those who die, declare the pennies on your eyes, because I'm the tax man. Yeah, I'm the tax man, and you're working for no one but me. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Not much has changed since 1966. Isn't that the truth? And not much has changed since the first century, where as we look at our Father's Word, we turn to Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 26. Not much has changed with this attitude toward taxes, this attitude toward tax collectors, this attitude toward people who are unlikely players in God's unfolding drama. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 27. After this, he, Jesus, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi, who was probably wearing Wranglers. I don't know. I truly don't know. But after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And bowing his head and closing his eyes, Levi secretly made a decision to give his life to Christ. No, it doesn't say that, does it? Jesus said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What an amazing passage of Scripture. Levi is now one of the tax collectors mentioned by name. If you remember in Luke chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist was out preparing the way for Jesus, preparing the way for the Messiah. And he was baptizing people, a baptism of repentance. Repentance is you're going in this direction, living your life, minding your own business, pursuing life with you at the center of the universe. It's all I, me, my. I, me, myself, and I. You are at the center of the universe. 
and God calls you, you hear his voice, and it's no longer about I, me, mine. George Harrison would be proud today. We're mentioning him twice. It's no longer about you being the center of the universe. It's now about Jesus Christ being the center of the universe. And this ongoing holy preoccupation with everything in my life, all of my resources, all of my time, all of my energy, all of who I am now being totally devoted to Jesus Christ and following him. That's the idea of repentance. John the Baptist was preparing the entire nation, the Jewish people, calling the nation to repentance. And among those, if you remember, in Luke chapter 3, verse 12, were tax collectors. Yes, the guys who would take the taxes. Tax collectors also came in verse 12 of chapter 3 to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. The tax collectors had come out to see John the Baptist and were being baptized by John the Baptist. Their hearts were prepared soil. We know that agricultural imagery here living in York with the alfalfa growing up at this time of the year, with the corn coming up as you drive around this absolutely beautiful landscape. Now, if you don't think it's absolutely beautiful, you've lived here for too long and you've forgotten how absolutely beautiful it is. The agricultural imagery of hearts being prepared for seed, that when it's deposited, the fertilizer is in the ground. The ground has been broken up. It's been tilled. It's been plowed, ready to receive the word of God. The tax collectors, their hearts have been prepared for the coming of Jesus. They went out and participated in the baptism of repentance. And here in Luke chapter 5, verse 27, one of those people probably... If it wasn't one of the people involved in the tax collectors who was baptized, it was certainly word got around to one of the tax collectors named Levi, and he's prepared. How do we know that he's prepared? But because of his response. We know because of the response of Levi that his heart was in the right place. So that when Jesus utters two simple words, two simple words, Jesus speaks two simple words, and this man leaves some of his life. Jesus says two words to this guy, and this guy leaves everything. He leaves everything and follows Jesus. The two words that Jesus says, follow me. And Levi says, okay, not only am I going to follow you, but I know that to follow you means I have to leave what I've been involved in. That's repentance. That's what repentance looks like. It's not just a theological term. It's not something that we mentally ascend to. Repentance is not a mental embracing. It's not an academic exercise. Repentance can be manifest in how we live. What we look like should be obvious as to whether or not we are following Jesus or we're following somebody else. Now, a couple of days ago, my family and I went to an area here that you can go to. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you're going there. Maybe you're going there today for all I know. Maybe I'm going to plant my own seed here about something that you can do recreationally with your family or just by yourself. You can go, hop in your car, and rent for $13 an hour a canoe at Lake Redmond. That's a pretty doggone good deal. We rented a four-person canoe and took our whole family out there in Lake Redmond. Now, you can also do this. If you're interested in experimenting and you're not sure about this idea of repentance, you're not sure about what that looks like in your own life, you're not going to forget now. You can go and you can rent two canoes. 
You can rent two canoes. I learned this from my African brothers when I lived for a short time in Liberia, when I was serving the Lord in a foreign mission field. You're serving the Lord in a domestic mission field if you're here hearing my voice sitting here right now in the United States of America. The Africans say you can't put one foot in one canoe and one foot in the other canoe. Well, you can do it. You just have a huge problem on your hands. You can go to Lake Redmond and you can rent two canoes for 26 bucks and you have an entire hour to figure this out and to work it out, an entire hour. Get it figured out how you can take one foot and put it in one canoe and another foot and put it in the other canoe and try to get someplace meaningful. Try to enjoy that hour of canoeing. It won't happen. Just like in your life and mine, there are many of us who have one foot in one canoe, our canoe, the canoe of the world. And we have our other foot kind of in the canoe of Jesus. And we're trying to get someplace, and we wonder why we can't get to any place meaningful. Our own personal lives, with me, myself, and I at the center of it, they're not satisfied, they're not fulfilled, we're frustrated. Living a life of great impact for Jesus Christ is also thwarted and frustrated because you can't have one foot in one canoe and one foot in the other canoe. The idea of repentance is that you leave the direction you were going in. You get your foot out of your own canoe, you put it squarely, both feet in Jesus' canoe, and you begin going in a totally different direction. Now, who, ex- who exemplifies this for us? A guy named Levi, who is a tax collector, a pimp, an outcast, a man who was filthy rich and got his money most likely by dishonest means. Yes, that was the reputation of the tax collector, the tax man. Took too much from people. That's why Jesus says in chapter 3 of Luke's gospel, he says, don't collect more than you're supposed to. Because Jesus knew the reputation of the tax man is to take more than was required of him and expected of him legally. And so there's a guy named Levi who knows that situation very well because he had a whole lot of money. And Levi had gotten his money. He acquired his money, most likely as a tax man, by means that would cause the eyebrows of his peers to be raised on more than one occasion. He's a rich man. He's got a lot of money. And Jesus speaks to him and says, two words, follow me. And this man's heart is so prepared, so ready, that he leaves everything. He gets out of his canoe, so to speak, and he goes and he follows Jesus. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance, this idea of repentance being a mental ascent, an academic exercise, is not biblical. It's not biblical. You cannot, first of all, follow Jesus without your lifestyle changing. You cannot follow Jesus personally if you are not following Jesus publicly. This is important for us to understand. This idea of bowing the head and closing the eyes and accepting Jesus confuses personal commitment and personal surrender with private surrender. If you're going to personally give your life to Jesus Christ the way Levi did, if you're going to follow Jesus and it is a personal decision, you have to do it. Nobody can do it for you. I can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Your children can't do it for you. Your coworkers can't do it for you. Your neighbors can't do it for you. You can't come in here and be baptized and sprinkled with water or immersed. doesn't mean anything if you haven't personally given your life to Jesus Christ. You have to personally give your life to Jesus Christ. This is what it means when we say, Jesus Christ is my personal Lord and Savior. 
It's personal. But there's nothing in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible. There is nothing in the Word of God to show us that a personal commitment to Jesus Christ is to be a private commitment to Jesus Christ. You've heard people say, maybe you're thinking, today you're hearing me and saying, well, that's, that's a, it's a very private thing. For My faith is a very private thing. If your faith is a private thing, you ain't got biblical faith. If your faith is private and you say, I don't want anybody to know it's my business, my decision for Christ and how I live for Jesus, if that's your understanding of faith, I tell you what, you've been out of the Bible for so long, you don't even understand what it's supposed to look like when you follow Jesus. Don't take my word for it. Take the word of God. Jesus says two words to him. Jesus doesn't have to cajole him, tie his hands behind his back, immerse him underwater, cover him with a pillow, persuade him, please, could you please? I need some people, I'm building my kingdom. If it wouldn't be too much of an inconvenience for you, Levi, is there any way that maybe I could persuade you, convince you to consider practically the ramifications of utilizing a little bit of your money? It takes money to build the kingdom. Could you give me a little bit of your money so that we could build this kingdom? Could you consider that, Levi? No. To be honest with you, Jesus doesn't really care who is following him. Because he knows that the ones who follow him fully are all the ones that he needs. He doesn't need numbers. He needs surrender. So that when the, by the time Jesus gets to Levi and says, follow me, Levi's sold. And notice it's public. Notice that Levi leaves everything. He leaves his world and he follows Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you cannot separate your personal decision for Christ from being manifest in the public world of where you roll. This is how a disciple rolls. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus Christ. Everybody recognizes that something happened to Levi. It was a personal decision he made. He was probably considering it before Jesus said those two words because by the time Jesus speaks, it's like a hot knife through butter. Cuts right to the heart. And God has probably been speaking to you. How do I know that? Because Jesus is still in the business of saying those same two words. It's a command. It's not a suggestion. There's no question mark after Jesus says, follow me. Follow me? You don't see Levi saying, this is not a Jewish dialogue here. Follow me. Follow you. I'm going to follow you. Who's following who? There's no debate here about who's being followed. There's no debate about following Jesus. Jesus is still in the business of speaking those same two words. They're not a suggestion. They're a commandment. Follow me. And when you follow Jesus, something happens to you. People can look at your life and recognize that you are making decisions that are different. They're fundamental. This guy leaves everything and the Bible says, look, he rose and he followed him, verse 28, 29. doesn't stop there. Levi made him, Jesus, a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. A large company. Now the interesting thing here is that there are two types of people in life. 
And there, those two people are presented here in Scripture. They're, they're here in the Scriptures. There are the tax collectors, and the tax collectors are over here. The tax collectors are people who recognize their sin. They recognize their shortcomings, their failures before God. They recognize that there is a Savior that they are in need of, and when he says, follow me, they get up, they leave everything, and they follow Jesus, and they are grateful for the call of Jesus. This guy, Levi, is a great example to us. What does he do? He has a great banquet. He uses his money, regardless of what it was used for other purposes in in his life, regardless of how he got it, he now uses the money that he otherwise used for selfish gain. And by the way, this is not a message about money. It's a a message about life. He leaves everything he used to be, and he is completely immersed now in Jesus. Is he a perfect man as a tax collector? No, he's not a perfect man. But he's a humble man. There's a difference. Because over here, we have the other players in this drama, and the other players are the people called the Pharisees. We don't see an example of Scripture of any Pharisee having a great banquet for Jesus, although we'll see that one of them invites Jesus over to his house for dinner. But that situation, just like this one, ends up in a debacle. The Pharisees always seem to be flies in Jesus' ointment. They always seem to be the people who should be in the right place at the right time doing the right thing, and they get it all wrong. They're the ones who know the Bible. They're the ones who know the Scriptures. They're the ones who are supposed to have known God for so many years. And yet Jesus shows up in their midst, and they are not following him. They are there to critique Jesus. The Pharisees are the people who have the critical spirit, the critical attitude. They're self-righteous. They recognize everyone else's problems, but they cannot recognize their own. Do you realize in this passage of Scripture, Luke says in verse 29, that Levi made him a great feast in his house. There was a large company of tax collectors and others and others reclining at table with him. Luke is neutral in his terminology. Tax collectors, that's what they did for a living. And others, people, hanging out with Jesus, a large number of them, a big crowd. But the Pharisees over here put their spin on that. They interpret it with their critical, self-righteous attitudes. They define those people as something other than the way God saw them. They looked at them with mere mortal eyes, and look at this, verse 30. The Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples. There's a sense in which they don't really want to take this directly to Jesus, because at this point, it's very difficult to confront Jesus face-to-face, one-on-one. They realize that Jesus has the power to heal, cast out demons. He's a teacher that is stupefying the people, causing their mouths to open and gasp in awe and wonderment and amazement. So they don't have the chutzpah to confront Jesus personally. So they confront Jesus through his disciples. They would make great passive aggressives. They confront Jesus through his disciples. And they grumble and they say, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Mr. Messiah, Mr. Savior, Excuse me, Mr. Teacher of the Law, Mr. Rabbi par excellence, 
we the Pharisees with the flowing robes and the biblical knowledge and the seminary degrees and the Bible college and the titles and the boxes with scripture verses tied on our foreheads, the phylacteries, and the boxes with scripture verses wrapped around our right wrists with the law of Moses written there to remind us of everything we do should be for God and on our foreheads to remind us everything we think about should be for God, which, by the way, it's interesting by the time we get to the book of Revelation that the Antichrist causes everybody to receive a mark on their hand or their forehead. Everything you do for the Antichrist, everything you think for the Antichrist, it's a counterfeit world system. It's not rocket science. The Pharisees being in this position where they should have been coming alongside of Jesus, they should have been leaving everything and saying, the teacher of teachers has arrived. Who am I? to follow in his footsteps. And instead, they're critiquing him. You know anybody who's got a critical spirit? Nothing's ever good enough. Nothing is ever right enough. Nothing is ever satisfactory. And these Pharisees in the position where they should have been teachers of Israel were critics of Israel's teacher. And in the process of learning all these scriptures and memorizing all these scriptures and teaching the people of Israel, they were disqualifying themselves because when the teacher comes on the scene and they should have been leading people to the feet of Jesus, instead, they're filled with contempt. They are filled with contempt. You have to understand that you will either be a tax collector who is a sinner from God's perspective, but humble enough to hear the voice of Jesus when he says, follow me, and you will follow Jesus, or you will be a Pharisee over here, recognizing that everybody else has the problem, but I don't. Everybody else needs to get their act together, but I don't. There's no middle ground. You are either a tax collector, a sinner, who will humble himself, humble herself, and receive God's provision of salvation through the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Christ. You're either in that position, or you are a sinner, nonetheless, but you are a Pharisee, recognizing everyone else's faults, everyone else's sins, and you don't really see the gravity of your own sin. Sometimes people can be so concerned and so consumed with recognizing the sins of other people that they forget the heights from which they have fallen. They forget their own need, become very Pharisaic, begin to recognize in their minds, in their hearts, or we might not see it, on the outward too frequently. But eventually, it'll manifest. That subtle attitude, that subtle thing that we struggle with, I struggle with it, and you struggle with it. Would you like me to lie to you this morning? Would you like me to put on airs and present myself as some super Messiah? Guess what? I didn't die for you on the cross and I wouldn't have done it if God asked me to do it. I am a coward in and of myself. And even if I wanted to do it, my sacrifice wouldn't have been good enough because I am a sin-stained cloth. You cannot clean a filthy table with a dirty rag. All of us forget our Pharisaic tendencies. All of us with the passage of time the longer we know the Word of God, the greater the danger is that we will become like the Pharisees whom the Word of God, who the Word of God, the Word became flesh, Jesus rebuked. 
And this is one in a series of confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. See, when you're really following Jesus Christ, you're going to have a heart for the tax collectors and the sinners. When you follow Jesus Christ, you're going to go where Jesus goes. Your life of repentance means you're going to reach out to people you otherwise would not reach out to. That's what repentance looks like. Repentance means you have people in your life whom you are deliberately reaching out to to share the gospel. Now, I know you're familiar with James chapter 4, verse 4. If you are a Pharisee, you are familiar with James 4, 4. Here it is. If you are a Christian for a long period of time, you're familiar with James chapter 4, verse 4. If you're a student of God's Word and you're concerned about sanctification and living a life for God, you're familiar with James chapter 4, verse 4. If you're maturing in your walk with God, you're familiar with James chapter 4, verse 4. The problem is you've got to be careful that you don't take James chapter 4, verse 4 out of context. You have to look at the full teaching of God's Word. James chapter 4, verse 4, you adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. People have used this particular passage of Scripture to isolate themselves, to live in a holy huddle, in a compound, to so withdraw from the rest of the people in the world that you have no ability to share the gospel with anybody anymore. You have no friends, quote-unquote, acquaintances. You don't have close goombas, close paisans, that are people who hate Jesus where you're hanging out with them and there's no difference between your li- the way you're living and the way they're living. That's what James chapter 4, verse 4 is warning us against. You don't have relationships with people that are so close that when people look at your life and your lifestyle, the words that are coming out of your mouth, the way you're living, the foods that you're eating, if you're drinking you know, alcoholic beverages and getting drunk, you're going places you shouldn't go to, you're watching things on television, on the internet, on your smartphone for that matter. Smartphones are a great way of becoming very stupid if you use them wrong. You want to make sure that you're not living your life in such a way that there's no difference between the way you're living and the people of the world, that you don't love the things of the world. Your next pursuit in life is not your next car that you're going to spend umpteen dollars on or the next bigger, greater, nicer house. Or, you know, it can be anything. You can be a chef in your own home or a cook or a housewife and covet your neighbor's blender. I know because for a long time we had a terrible blender. That's why I say that. And Janet will tell you I'm not a chef, let alone a cook. Friendship with the world, the idea of loving the world, coveting the things of the world, wishing you had the things of the world, hanging out with the people of the world as if there is no Jesus to live for, as if there's no God to live for, is quite different than what's being presented here in Luke chapter 5. Because Jesus is reaching out to the tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners. And if you are following Jesus Christ, if I am following Jesus Christ, there have got to be tax collectors in our lives. There's got to be sinners in our lives. There have got to be people who there's no way on your best day that you would reach out to that person and befriend them. Like a guy named Eddie from the Dominican Republic. I went through four years of college, got my degree, my Bachelor of Arts in English with a concentration in argumentative and persuasive writing. And after I graduated, I landed a prestigious position in New Brunswick, New Jersey in a one-hour Photoshop. 
did my parents proud. They helped pay, me through, pay my way through college, and I ended up, after graduation, accepting that prestigious offer at a one-hour Photoshop. Now, I know many of you are looking at me and saying, what's a one-hour Photoshop? Because you're so used to HD quality on your iPhone and your Droid, you don't even know what that was. There used to be a day, not too long ago, when people used to have these things called cameras with film inside of them. It was light-sensitive. And you'd take your pictures, and if you had a really nice camera, it would automatically rewind after it was done taking your last picture. And you'd take that roll of film with no computer chip in it whatsoever, and you'd bring it to my place in New Brunswick, New Jersey, at the one-hour Photoshop. And I would put it into the machine very carefully so as not to expose the film to any light. And it would go through and it would print out the 24 or the 36 exposure film that you would have. You could choose whether it was matte or whether it was glossy finish, 3x5, 4x6, whatever size you wanted to. I was that man. I, with my four-year college degree, I was that man. And I remember being there in that building at the ground floor, and there was a young man named Eddie from the Dominican Republic, broken accent, broken English, came in, and he dropped off a roll of film, and then before I knew it, Eddie was back again. And then Eddie was back again, and again and again. Eddie was repeatedly coming to the one-hour Photoshop. Eddie liked to take a lot of pictures. And then I realized something about Eddie as I was being friendly to him and talking to him. Eddie was a little bit younger than me, coming to this country from the Dominican Republic, from a broken home, a broken family, and Eddie had a sexual identity crisis. Wait a second, Pastor Mike. What do you mean by that? Eddie had a sexual identity crisis. I have your attention now, don't I? Eddie, I don't think, I, I got the impression after a while that Eddie really wasn't interested in film. Eddie was interested in this Italian guy from New Jersey who was working at the one-hour Photoshop. The guy who grew up in an Italian family with the hairy chest and knew what it was like to be a paisan and a goomba and a man's man. Eddie was interested in me. When I finally realized that, being a little bit naive, that Eddie really wasn't interested in developing pictures. He was interested in developing a relationship, which I wasn't going to develop. I began to share the gospel with him. This sinner, this tax collector, this man who there's no way in my wildest dreams I would have developed a relationship with Eddie who was in a relationship with another man and was miserable. He was absolutely miserable. And the reason why Eddie gave me, Eddie told me the reason why he was in that relationship with the other man, in his words, is because he gave me the love. Because he gave me the love. In English, that would mean because he loves me. He's reaching out to me. And I realized that Eddie needed to see the love of Jesus. Not the love of of another person in a relationship that God does not approve of. Began to reach out to this man who was unlikely. He would not be the kind of person I would have pursued in my life to reach out to. I was not a close bosom buddy with him, but I had developed a relationship with him that was missional for the purpose of leading him to Christ. And over a period of months, in sharing the gospel, and having meals, just like Jesus had meals with the tax collectors and the quote-unquote sinners, 
Eddie from the Dominican Republic. I remember his last name to this day, but I'm purposely not saying it. Eddie gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Savior and his Lord. He heard Jesus say, follow me, and Eddie, through me, gave his life to Jesus Christ. And I discipled Eddie for several months, taught him the Word of God, explained to him what it meant that now he was no longer seen as a sinner in God's eyes, he was now seen as a saint, washed by the blood of Jesus. See, I understood in my messed up time of my life where I was trying to get my footing and do something with my college degree and God was doing a work in me, I realized that at least, regardless of where I was in life, I could be a missionary. I could lead people to Christ. I could make disciples. And God would put people across my path who I just, see, I just needed to be deliberate about it. And I was only there for a short time thereafter, and then I went on to the job that I really wanted when I became the department manager of the shoe department of Herman's World of Sporting Goods. Woo! I landed a big time. You should have seen me when I broke the news to my mom and dad. Hey, I'm no longer at the one-hour Photoshop. I applied for and got accepted as the department manager in Herman's World of Sporting Goods. I see, oversee the shoe department, the athletic shoe department. What? When you're really following Jesus, you do what Jesus did. I think one of the greatest tra tragedies we've committed in the church in the United States of America, which other churches in other parts of the world outside of America, because everybody wants to be like the Americans. Everybody wants to do what America does. Everybody wants to be like the Americans, and that includes the church. One of the greatest, most difficult, unfortunate things that has happened is that we have taught people that missionary work is for the professionals. If you're going to be a missionary, you've got to raise support and you've got to come in front of a church and you've got to go on deputation and you've got to raise funds and you've got to go to a foreign mission field. And that's where you share the gospel because after all, that's where the needy people are. And unfortunately, we've done that for so long and we've become so, such experts at doing that in the body of Christ that our own country is in a bit of a shambles. Have you not noticed that? Our own country is in a bit of a mess. We've sent our best overseas, and we haven't given Jesus our best here in the United States of America. And the point is that we should all be missionaries. Some of us are good for nothing. Some of us get paid to be good. Some of us are, quote-unquote, professional missionaries where we will go to a foreign mission field. But all of us, if you're following Jesus Christ, must be missional. All of us must have at the forefront of our lives this idea of following Jesus. And when you follow Jesus, you will make friendships with, you will be deliberate in developing relationships with other people for the sole purpose of sharing the love of Jesus Christ to bring them to the salvation that only comes by humbling yourself before Jesus. When you are really following Jesus, you will develop relationships with people for the purpose of leading them to Christ. That's what this whole idea of missional is. Missional living is adopting the mindset and the lifestyle of a missionary in order to present Jesus Christ and the great news of salvation through Jesus Christ so that people repent and live for Jesus. 
That's missional living. Do you understand how the, the church life in the United States of America would be dramatically, fundamentally transformed if every person saw themselves as a missionary? Do you not understand how God has sent you into your neighborhood, into your neighborhood? Yes, your neighborhood, the neighborhood you're trying to get out of. God sent you there in the first place to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to invite people to your house, to get close enough with them that they hear the gospel. You might never bring somebody to church, but you have the opportunity every day to to bring church to those people, to bring the very presence of Jesus Christ into other people's lives. If Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, as he refers to himself in chapter 7, look, chapter 7 of Luke's Gospel, Verse 34, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's how people view Jesus. If Jesus was a friend of tax collectors and sinners, let me ask you, where are your tax collectors and sinners? Where are the tax collectors and sinners in your life and mine? If we're really following Jesus, there should be tax collectors and sinners that at any moment, we could have them over to our house. Any moment we could go to their house. It doesn't mean that they're bosom buddies. It doesn't mean that we're getting drunk with them. It doesn't mean we're watching things we shouldn't watch with them. You've got to be careful that as salt and light, you don't become salted. Your lamp doesn't become dim. You have to be close with Jesus. That's the point. When you're close with Jesus, when you're really following Jesus, you will have a heart for people you otherwise would not have a heart for. You will go and you will purposely, deliberately, intentionally be missional. Your mindset is one of reaching people for Christ because you know that Christ reached you. All of your resources are pulled together to do what? To reach people for Christ. It's not something we farm out. Missionary work is not something we farm out to other people. Missionary work is something we embrace as a follower of Jesus Christ. If you are really following Jesus Christ, you will see yourself as a missionary. If you're really following Jesus Christ, you will be a missionary. If you really have heard the voice of Jesus when he says, follow me, you're going to want to lead other people to follow him too. You have to, or you're not really following Jesus. Would you rather hear that from me, a nobody, while there's still time to repent? Or would you rather hear it from Jesus when it's too late and it's too late to do anything? I mean, which would we rather have? Would we rather hear the voice of Jesus today when he says, follow me and go where you otherwise would not go? When he says, follow me and do what you otherwise would not do? Will you hear the voice of Jesus and your life becomes totally different than it otherwise would become? Would you rather hear that now while you still have a brainwave and a heart beating? Would you rather do that now or would you rather wait until it's too late? See, all of us are either tax collectors or Pharisees. The tax collector was the one who recognized his need. The Pharisee was the one who didn't recognize his need, was in the biggest need of all, and would not repent, would not humble himself, would not follow Jesus. Which one are you today? Which one are you? How missional do you want to be with your life? How important is it to you that Jesus said to you those two words, follow me? Do you hear him? 
How well could it be said if other people are looking at your life? Would your life be recorded if you lived 2,000 years ago? Would you be the one written of here, like Levi, leaving everything that it's public, everybody sees that your life has changed, you've readjusted your life? Would your name be in Scripture where you are leaving everything and calling all of your friends together to tell people, I want you to meet this Jesus. There's hope for me. There's hope for you. We're all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction, and it's in the direction pointing away from God. Repentance is turning that boat around and getting everybody else in that boat with you to follow Jesus, to receive His mercy, to receive His grace, to humble yourself. Would your name be in Scripture if you lived 2,000 years ago? Where you're living right now and how you're living right now, what does it say about you and how closely you're following Jesus? Are you a missionary? Are you a friend of tax collectors and sinners? Are there people in your life whom you're purposely, intentionally developing relationships with? People you otherwise would not intentionally pursue for the purpose of rescuing them. Not that you can rescue them, but you know the person who can. You know the person who can save their souls. You know them personally if you've given your life to Christ. And God is going to hold you and he's going to hold me accountable to the fact that we have the words of eternal life. We know the Savior from firsthand personal experience. God wants us to be missionaries because God himself is the first and foremost missionary coming to save, coming to seek, coming to seek and save the lost. And when you follow Jesus, when you really follow Jesus, when you hear Jesus say those two simple words, follow me, you get up out of your seat. And what was otherwise something that would be very personal and private becomes something very public because you cannot hide someone's commitment to Jesus Christ. And you don't need a t-shirt or a ball cap to tell anybody about it. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. Mm -hmm.